Well, let's talk about the uh, about Marx and Mises. Uh, can you describe in short what's the difference between uh, the both of them? Although it's very obvious, but uh, for the people who are not familiar with both. Well, I mean, I don't know how, how possible it is to do it in short, but I guess they, they represent polar opposites and that Mises is in favor of a full market, free market economy with without restrictions. And Marx is for the, abo ab the complete abolition of the market. Now, not all Marxists are now for the complete abolition of the market, but it's clear if you read Marx that he wants the end of buying and selling and um, he wants the what he calls the anarchy of production, or at least what Engels called, his collaborator Engels called the anarchy of production, which is in a free market, people just make decisions independently and, and he sees this as unstable and um, just just um, a silly idea to, to let people do these things independently. He wants the conscious control of production. He wants um, what they call production for use, not profit. Not production for profit, but production for use. He, he thinks, oh, we should sit down and look at what people need And then we should consciously plan the economy to produce that, what, what we discover that people need. Marx is, uh, for, for, for a lot of people, he's, people have this idea that if you are uh, working for, for an employer, then you should... Um, um, Then you should choose Marxism because that's supposed to be better for you as an employer. But how is it in reality? Is it uh, is it a bad idea for um, for, for employees to uh, to follow Marxist uh, ideas? Well, I mean, I think it's probably bad for everyone to follow Marxist ideas because what we've seen is that you can't abolish the market even in countries where they've tried to do this they've had like lenin himself had to uh, institute the new economic policy because the they were unable to consciously plan the entire society you need the feedback mechanism of buying and selling to tell producers what needs to be produced and what measure you know even a baker knows roughly how much brown bread and white bread and croissants and um, cakes to make every day because he's got the information of people coming in, in and out of the shop every day. But even him with that information will still have to throw away bags of one product one day and he'll um, outsell another product another day and um, he'll run out even though that, that product's in demand. So even with that local knowledge, people make mistakes. So just scale that up into an entire economy. It's completely impossible because everyone has wants, needs, preferences, different levels of information that are changing all the time. And there's it's impossible to plan for the human heart. Sometimes it's even impossible to plan for our own heart because we change, we gain new information, we change our minds. So to try and do that across a whole economy is impossible. And Mises identified this in 1920 when he wrote a famous article called Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth, when he said that 
without prices in the means of production, the factories, the machines, land, um, natural resources, it's impossible to calculate what and how to produce. You know, if you've got a railway that needs to go from A to B, but there's a mountain range between A and B, how do you figure out whether you should go around the mountain, if you should go burrow through the mountain, or if you should find a path for the railway through the mountain range? Um, the only way is by having prices to indicate which would be the most economic, like in terms of cost-benefit analysis. Prices and the means of production communicate how and need a resource like, say, iron is, because all of the producers are trying to get a hold of iron, and if the price goes too high, then some people will say, well, I'll just find something else to use it for. But those people who really need it, who really can't do without it, are likely to pay the higher price for it. And the same goes for a plot of land or any resource that might yeah, that might be required for production. And, and, and Marx could not conceive of this problem. Yeah. I had to uh, interrupt because uh, Yoshi is coming in. Excellent. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm Yoshi Livo from Liberland, and I stream about cryptos, uh, well, a couple of times per week, so I try to do it like that. And, uh, yeah, what to say, I live without a bank account since 2014, because I, I, I got in contact with Bitcoin quite early on, and I, I invested some of that with Liberland, and we're trying to build our own nation, because... You want to escape the European Union? So, yeah, that's a little bit of my background. Have you already been protesting any of the measures or, or have you been, uh, how have you been dealing with it? I went to one lockdown protest out of curiosity, but it was uh, rather a dull affair, so I didn't go to any more. Yeah. Yeah. The earth was flat there or not? The Earth was flat. That was a question of it was like was that was that the general consensus among the people? No, there was no. It wasn't like that. I mean, the thing is, it was um, it, there. There was some, definitely some more extreme views where people were worried about um, new world order stuff, and um, there was some definitely people who are worried about vaccinations, particularly mandatory vaccinations, but mm -hmm. um, I think largely I, I mean, I don't know, where's the line between what is like normal, allowable scepticism and tinfoil hat wearing? Um, yeah. it's, in a, it's in a different place for everyone. The thing is, scepticism towards the pharmaceutical industry can go too far, but it's also based on the fact that there's a lot of shit going on in the pharmaceutical industry. I mean, yeah. from companies doing uh, clinical trials and excluding results that don't suit their marketing yeah. schedule to great, great example. To, to people who run journal. Like, I think uh, one of the directors of The Lancet, I need to get the specific details, basically left in disgust saying that the 
journal had basically become run by the advertisers you know whoever was running they they were they would not publish results that said this drug has got side effects or this drug is bad and things like that because they'd go well you know that company advertises in our journal so we you know we don't want them to get mad at us and stop advertising in the journal so until we actually sort the problems that exist in the pharmaceutical industry you're not going to be surprised when people are like strongly against vaccinations or you know skeptical about this that and the other because they're they're being given reason to be skeptical yeah, and the last example and, yeah, of what that, you just that, mentioned what i remember is that there was something around that, that time uh, there was this article in the lancet about hydroxychloroquine that got retracted 2 weeks later but yeah. All the institutions, based on that article, then stopped all their research because, yeah, well, the Lancet already wrote about it, right? And 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 that's how they managed to 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 steer it, you know, and to to when, push it. There's a there's a great book called um, Overdosed America, and you can watch some of the videos with the author of that book on YouTube. He exposes a lot of bad science in medicine and explains why people might have reasons to to be skeptical now that doesn't mean that drugs don't save lives as well just we are forced uh, we're herded into taking extreme positions like if you've got any concern about vaccinations at all you're anti-vax or you know they're all bad or they're all good or 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 you know people feel like they need to mount a strident defense of pharmaceutical companies because they're reacting against the more fringe views like oh, all medicine is poison and, you know, we should just be, um, I don't know, taking cannabis oil or something like that. You know, um, people are polarized into two extreme, extreme views, but the world is absolutely full of nuance. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, well, that was just my little question because that's what I'm really, you know, I, I uh, fell asleep a little bit over the last two years because I managed to cash in the last uh, bull run of 2017 with Bitcoin and then, well, I had the luxury of, you know, not having to be on top of it to, you know, I, I I was on top of it for six years, like with the Bitcoin, everything I wanted to, to see. And then when it hit or when I when I managed to, to cash out in a good way, um, I wasn't paying attention to event 201, for example, that happened in October the year before. So let's say uh, four, 14 months ago, something like that. So... Uh, I wasn't paying attention at all, and then I got bored, so I, I sold some bitcoins to buy all this studio equipment. And then, when on the third of March I went live for the first time, and within two weeks the entire world was upside down. So for me, this the stream has influenced my year a lot, and I really had a lot from that, you know. And uh, mm. yeah, I don't know. I mean, what can I do more? I have given up my my nationality to go to Liberland and I'm spreading that narrative on the internet and you can call me misinformation, but it's my narrative and my Bitcoins pay for it so far. So I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing okay, you know? Yeah. I think that's the best we hope for is to start with ourselves and make sure that we're doing okay and trying to help the people around us and take it from there because a lot of people are kind of focusing on the world events as a distraction because it's 
Yeah, I mean, it's easier to have concerns about things that are outside of your control than take responsibility for what is in your control. What I think about, for example, is people who are worried about, say, fluoride and chlorine in the water, which, you know, there's reason to think it's harmful, but, you know, they go out and eat at McDonald's or something like that. It's like, you know, maybe you should start with what is in your control, you know, stop eating, put the corn chips away, you know, while you're 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 like complaining on the internet about GMOs while when you go to the supermarket your basket is abs- your at your basket is absolutely full of processed food that doesn't have the vitality that you need. So yes, I'm all for being careful about what we put in our food and water supply and air and things like that, but people really need to look at to take control of what they can change first. Yeah, it's a good comment, especially because, and that's something that I also already heard before I, before you saw me, a lot of people just don't want the help, you know. I mean, I tried it again last week here and, you know, get these people to, to accept Bitcoin or other cryptos where I live now. And uh, it's difficult and it's very emotional. The money is so emotional for the people. And then, uh, you know, they never want to admit that they are slaves for that money because that's so painful. So they don't want to think about crypto, for example, that what I started. And it's just I try to help them a little bit and make a little video on explaining how to install a wallet or stuff like that. But it's difficult, man. It's difficult. People that don't want to be helped, that's why... Although I don't like him, but I really hope that Trump is going to take that uh, election and then it's going to be a shockwave. I really can see how the story plays out in that way, you know. So, but actually, uh, Anthony is in the USA. <laughs> Maybe you can tell hmm. us a bit with how, how do you experience the uh, American elections uh, around you? Well, I mean, I I was I, I I actually only arrived here around the 23rd of November, so I didn't actually see the U.S. elections play out. Um, I would say that for myself, it's really hard to know what's going on, and even in America, because you know I'm staying here at my girlfriend's house. Um, sometimes we go out for dinner. We've gone out to a bar a couple of times, and people seem to be having fun. But without being able to go into people's houses and ask them, "Hey, what do you think about what's going wrong on right now?" The only thing is um, Facebook. You know, you're getting your view of the world from Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, try to find a couple of good Twitch streams because that can also help, right? But uh, yeah, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. It, it, I do try to follow the mainstream media just a little bit, but I know what the bullshit that they are saying, and I can I I see it different. I can I don't believe it. So I don't know. I still give uh, Trump a small chance. Uh, have you got also some contacts with the American Libertarian Party? And uh, do you know a little bit how they are doing? I, I don't, you know, I mean, I went to a Libertarian Party meetup a couple of weeks ago, and it seems like everyone there is pretty skeptical on the lockdowns um, and, you know, aware of the fact that these are seeming to cause more harm than good. But I. It's really hard. I, I I don't know what the, you know the 
the party as a whole thinks or anything like that. You know, we're all pretty atomized at the moment. Mm -hmm. Even at the best of times, even when society was open and you could go to bars and restaurants and clubs and everything, cafes, you still live in a bubble of your peers and things like that. Yeah, you might, you know, you might have a casual conversation with someone uh, here and there, but you, you really... Even so, it's going to be a biased sample depending on when you go to it. It's really hard to know what the, the public as a whole thinks on anything. Yeah, but in a way, you really you have to choose a side as, in, in a way. You know, we are forced to really take consciously what's, what's happening now because it's stretched out for so long and it's, this is discussion and so I don't know. I don't know. We will see what's going to happen. Yeah. We will see. Yeah, but uh, yeah, let's go back to the, the, the explanation of what uh, cultural Marxism is. Okay, well, who know it. Okay, it's not center of the bullseye in terms of my expertise, so we might just get. I I'm, I know more about orthodox Marxism, but essentially, what happened was Marx predicted. Marx made a bunch of predictions that were wrong. <laughs> One of them was that capitalism would lead to the progressive immiseration of the workers. In other words, it, the working class would get more and more poor, more and more impoverished under capitalism as the strive for profit drove um, wages down. That didn't materialize. Even in Marx's own lifetime, he saw living standards increase. So he he himself repudiated that claim towards the end of his life. The thing is, Marx's theory of history said that um, societies go through stages, and when a stage comes to its full development, it requires um, revolution in order to bring about the next stage of society. So feudal societies were no longer tenable at a certain stage in history, which caused bourgeois revolutions like the French Revolution and the American Revolution, which were revolutions to make the world safe for capitalism. And he thought that um, this would happen in the most industrialized societies because Sorry, the communist revolution would happen in the most industrialized societies because those were the most advanced capitalist societies. That's another prediction of his that was wrong because, of course, we know communism happened first in Russia, which was um, not one of the most industrialized societies like Germany or Britain or the USA. So the Marxists wanted to have some explanation for why the working class were not um, seeing that they were being exploited by capitalists in advanced societies and why they were not uh, overthrowing the repression of the capitalists. And, and basically the cultural Marxists, people like the Frankfurt School, um, which was a, a research institute in Germany, which then was moved to America because... Um, because of the Nazis, they, a lot of them were Jewish, uh, and if they weren't persecuted for being Jewish, they would have been persecuted for being communists. Um, they, they had to flee Germany, and they set up in the USA, and they basically were trying to understand why revolution had not happened in Western countries, because they saw, like Marx, they saw capitalism as alienating to the worker, that they wanted a system 
which led to the fully fledged development of the human individual, or you know, that's what they believed that the socialist communist utopia would be. They thought people's um, lives in capitalist societies were ruled by work, and that products ruled people, and uh, you know, the things you own own you, and all this stuff. So. They, they said they basically thought that the workers had been assimilated into the capitalist system and um, that had happened through various means. One was cheap commodities. They were given these uh, cheap goods and services, you know, bread and circuses. So, oh, you know, um, they're happy with their little gadgets and toys, their phonograph record player and their crappy pop music. And, you know, it's, it's keeping them... You know, um, mesmerized and hypnotized into the system, and they wanted a alternative strategy for overthrowing capitalism. And and since the the workers had been assimilated into the system, um, they and they they said the only way to do that is through cultural means. We need to change the culture, and they they set about doing that in several means. And the 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 most uh, flagrant manifestations of that now are as like identity politics, which in a way is sorry, what? Identity identity, po- identity, ah, politics. identity politics. Sorry, now, I misheard you. Um my friend and um consultant, I consult sometimes for his views on on Marx, Michael Rexenwald, he says it's important to know the, the, the cultural Marxist stood Marx on his head, but it was still Marx that they stood on his head. Because while identity politics is really, an, an, is really incompatible with orthodox Marxism, because Marxism says people are in classes, you're working class, bourgeois class, and your affiliation is class-based, not based on your race or sex or um, um, your sexual identity or your national identity. You are a worker. You're part of the international class, the working class, which has no na- nation. So that's orthodox Marxism. Your nationality is not important. Your identity is not important. It's your class affiliation. Even though that seems to be Turning, even though it seems to be a departure from Marx, it's still Marx they're putting on their head because it still has the class antagonistic element of it. Now you're classed by your sex. If you're a male, you're a white male, you've got white male privilege, which that puts you in a different class, an antagonistic class to, um, say, a black woman, for example. So that's, that's the very interesting thing about cultural Marxism, whereas on one hand it's a departure from orthodox Marxism, um, it's also, uh, it also incorporates elements of Marx. In fact, in a way, it's a sort of proof of Marxian thinking. Um, if you'd say that Marx took from Hegel this idea that um, society changes dialectically, so you have one force putting on going and pushing in one direction and you have another force pushing in the opposite direction and what you end up is they synthesize together and produce a new thing which uh, incorporates elements of them both. So um, a kind of cultural Marxism incorporates 
elements of Marxism, but changes other ones. Well, we do see a lot of pushing happening from uh, the Marxist side of society today, is what I believe. I don't know if you're familiar with the 17 Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations. Uh, well, you... well I, I'd be interested to hear you commenting on them. Well, you know, the thing is, it's a lot to, to say in, in, in one thing, but that sounds to me exactly like what you have just described to me here, the, the, the change of a, you know, and, and then your conclusion in the end, or how I took it, is there are two sides, two sides pushing, and they end up somewhere, you know, depending on how hard they push, they where else, you know, and so if I see all this pushing happening today, and for example, everybody being put on on, on Corona aid and and stuff like that. Basically, a uh, basic income has arrived. You know, uh, where is this gonna end? How are we gonna try and because uh, I've also heard you say that he was wrong, Mr. Marx, mm. right? So I'm just mm. uh, playing. Uh, yeah. Uh, so so how 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 should we deviate from the or how should we push back against? Well, it's a very strong push that I see happening. So, so um, uh, as a Lieberlander, you know, I would like to. Yeah, well, it's one of the ways to push back. But maybe you have a different, better one. How That's to how so... to how to how to open the eyes of these? Uh, you know, I, I, yeah. Uh, because I have the feeling like a lot of them have don't really know. Uh, that it is Marxist, but they are supporting at the moment, you know, and, and, and they just, it feels right because they have always had this feeling for whatever reason, because they watch too much television probably, but like they are, you know, less than somebody else because on television, every hero is, is white, you know, I've never seen a black James Bond, so uh, let's be fair about it. And, um, uh, uh, but how to break that, France, almost, or that's, you know... Well, I think you're hanging on something important, which is that this is a psychological phenomenon. You said these people feel like they're being screwed or, you know... Um, I think that we've got a problem in that our education system doesn't prepare people for participation. I say that quickly. Prepare people for participation in a market economy. If you had a schooling system that took people in, identified their skills and helped support them in learning skills, then by the time they're adults, by the time they're ready to enter the workplace, in fact, the education system should give people an opportunity to learn three, four, five skills, at least to the point where they're not rubbish at them. Because learning a skill isn't just like, say you go to woodwork classes and you learn to make a table. You won't mm -hmm. just get. You don't just get the ability to make a table. You get the. You get the experience of going from not being very good at something to being acceptable at it. Now you don't need to be capable of being a carpenter, but you've just learned that. Hey, if I get my head down and I work at something, I can learn that. Now we've got kids going through these schools where the only thing they teach them is learn this out and write it out in an exam. The only real skills they're learning are arithmetic, reading and writing. 
apart from that, it's mostly learn stuff and write it out in an exam again. So they're not learning that they can learn. And what does the market economy require of you? It requires of you to go out and provide value to other people. When you look at the work that people do in school, it's not meaningful work. You fill in a worksheet and then the teacher marks it and then she puts it in the bin. Or you write an essay and the teacher reads it, gives you a mark and hands it back to you. If you're lucky, your parents read it. They're not saying, write this essay for to convince someone of something that you believe, you know, and we'll, we'll publish it in, on online or something, you know. When you learn to make a table, you also get a table. So the, the work that we're putting kids through detaches them from the reality of producing something for a purpose. It's all yeah, there is There is work. no real. There is also no real honor in today's society to be able to make something, right? Who's right. making something? That is that is not, that's your hobby. You do that as an extra. That is not your profession because you need to have something. People are coming out. Not only without skills, but without the experience of discovering that they can learn skills that are useful to other people, they're going to be hostile to the market. They're coming out incapable of providing for themselves in a market economy. Yeah, I noticed it a little bit from myself, what you're saying. I mean, I, I, I came out of college. I, I was supposed to become auditor. And uh, yeah, you learn while you go, but you had no clue what you were going to do while you hit the office for the first time, right? And uh, I was never taught how what a euro is, and that's in the end what uh, made me a radical a little bit. Because when I found out myself, I retaliated a little bit. But uh, uh, yeah, so so I think it's a, it's a good uh, good analysis what you're saying. I can I can see a, a truth in your answer. Let's say it like that, right? Uh, I also would like to know is um, what do you think uh, if, if Marx was alive today? How would he? What would he think or say about this all this cultural Marxism that's going around? Would he agree or oppose it? Or that's a really interesting question. Um, Marx is an interesting character. He didn't really engage with his critics. Um, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. he he would kind of flame them you know he would be marx would be terrible on twitter or facebook because he really lost his temper with anyone that didn't agree with him he had some friends that he debated with and he learned from but he lost them he almost even lost engels who supported him as a friend because when engels wife died he wrote a letter that didn't really show any compassion for that and uh also, no, you want and, more money and also <laughs> asked asked for money so yeah. so the thing is but it's not that he didn't change any opinions during his lifetime. Over his life, he became much less hopeful that revolution, he believed that revolution was just around the corner. And as things went on, it became clear that it wasn't. He also obviously changed his opinion on the progressive immiseration of the workers, which really, in a way, has the ass falls out of his theory because it's the progress, it's the, the, life of the workers becoming progressively worse, which is meant to drive them to revolution. So if Marx at the end of his life is saying, well, you know, capitalism doesn't really make workers poor in objective terms, only in relative terms, then why are they going to revolt? You know, why, why are they going to make a communist revolution? So whether he would accept the cultural Marxist, it's impossible. The thing is, it's impossible to divorce Marx from his time. 
So it's impossible to say what Mark's position would be like today. That's like asking, if Beethoven was born today, what genre of music would he compose? You know, maybe he'd be making electronic music or something like that. Mark's, a bunch of rivers flowed into Mark's. The previous socialists, most of them French, the American political economists and German philosophy, the, the time was ripe from Marx to produce his theories. And it's really impossible to divorce Marx from the time that he was writing in. I think that's interesting because it almost gives a defence to a Marxist position. It also kind of gives power to one of Marx's theories, which is that it's economic conditions that shape our ideas rather than ideas that shape economic conditions, because I'm saying that you know, there's a historical conditions rise give rise to ideas because I'm saying that his historical conditions were a necessary prerequisite for his ideas. Mm. Yes. I, I was triggered to also try and be devil's advocate here a little bit. Please do. And uh, because what if uh, uh, a little hypothesis? I mean, let, let's let's first of all let me say that I don't believe we live in a true capitalist society today. There is a central bank and governments demand that you pay your taxes in one certain currency. So it's, you know, subsidies everywhere, uh, protection, fees, whatever. But it is still somewhat more capitalist than, than communist the system that we're living in. So uh, what is, uh, the thing is uh, that I'm saying is that uh, Marx predicted this revolution um, what if he was just uh, uh, really early and that uh, since 2008 we now see the inflation in traditional fiat government fiat money systems. This, I believe the number is something like 20% of all dollars that are in existence are created in this year because of Corona. There was an massive increase on the balance sheet, for example, of the Federal Reserve Bank, but also the ECB and the Central Bank of Japan saw rise in in in, in total total balance. You know the total number of the balance sheet just grew enormously big again. So 20% of all the dollars in circulation are created this year. Um, so what if the revolution is around the corner just now and everything is still going to happen? Because well, we I mean... also see this uh, 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 United Nation. Uh, uh, sustainable development goal play out, for example. So aren't the pieces falling together? Well, the thing is, even if revolution happens, and it could, you know, that doesn't mean that Marx is right. Like, right about what? I'm sure a lot of people have hypothesized revolution. When you say Marx is right, what, what, what was he right about? Was he right about the fact that um, societies progress in stages, you know, from uh, feudalism to capitalism to socialism will it prove that um, that a, a centrally planned economy can work? I mean, it's been it's certainly been tried in several countries now. Lots of people who claim to be Marxists say, "Oh no, we don't believe in central planning. That's um, the authoritarian left. We're the libertarian left. We want, you know, um, we want people to own their own factories and things like that." Um, that still doesn't really solve the calculation problem. So 
Um, the, the fact is that Marx was for the abolition of the market, right? So if people are coming along and saying that they've got an updated version of socialism which allows the market to exist, they're not orthodox Marxists. They might have adopted Marx's ideas in some areas, but they're definitely not. If, they, if they're for the existence of markets in some socialist society, then they're not orthodox Marxists, that's for sure. Ah, well, I tried, I tried, but, uh, you know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, a revolution can happen, but I don't think it'll be a good thing. It's not going to lead no, to no, a better... No. At this stage, it's not going to lead to a better society if it does happen. Um, you know... I think it's, uh, if it's going to happen, it's going to be partially staged, right? And and that's what I just, in the little break we had, it's what I see a little bit happening now, that if uh, these people that have been rioting since... July for basically the elections because that's why it's happening now and now they are in this 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 mindset because we live in limbo I made a YouTube video uh, yesterday about it it's a little crypto term when you send your coins out and they are waiting for a confirmation they are in limbo so I made the analogy that we are living in limbo today because we are waiting for this presidential outcome and if it shifts then I can really see those people uh, who have been basically saying, like, we're going to start a revolution, that that something might happen. You're talking uh, about uh, the Antifa people? Stuff like that, yeah. So how close could we actually be? That's my, a little bit my thing. But if Trump wins uh, within one month and he is elected again, will we see all of that happening? Sorry, could you repeat that? I don't understand. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I sometimes I'm just, you know... No, ju just the last thing. Loud. Just the yeah, last well, thing that, just the what, last what thing that it, you said. What if it shifts? What if the election shifts to Trump? Do you see uh, 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 an opportunity for... Because, uh, because people have been warmed up a little bit for it. So, so uh, do you think it will explode? You are in the United States today. Is there a lot of hatred already? And if I look at the media, the way how they talk two sides against each other, it's not really like they're best friends. Let's, let's No, it's, it. it's been... And this is the consequence of parliamentary democracy. It's, one, it's winner fits, winner takes all. And when you have a situation where 66% or 70% or 80% are on one side and 20% are on the other side, people are willing to accept a lot more. They go, okay, well, I don't agree with it, but it's the consensus. But when you have something like Brexit, which is 52% to 48%, or Scottish independence, which is 55% to 45% against, or the American elections, which the last two have been super close, what you essentially have is whoever wins, you know, takes it all. They get to force their agenda on the other half and the other half hate them. And the only real solution to this, and unfortunately it's not presented, is to lower the influence that the government has on the day-to-day -day lives of people so people don't feel like they're losing everything when they lose an election. At least if we're negotiating and we disagree you know, we can say, well, we will have 50% my way and 50% your way. And maybe we can come to an agreement. You know, we can listen to, you know, one of us doesn't like heavy metal and one of us doesn't like 
pop music so we can listen to disco or something, you know, find some kind of compromise, uh, something that we both like. This is impossible with parliamentary democracy. And the problem we face is whenever you talk about democracy not being a good thing or you wanting to have less democracy, people think that the alternative is dictatorship. But in, in, in reality... The question is, the choice is not usually between democratic control and dictatorial control. It's between democratic control and the market. To the degree that democratic control increases, market control decreases, and the inverse is also true. Yeah, yeah. By the way, how was Marx thinking about democracy? Yeah, okay, so that's a really, really good question because... His, I actually wrote an essay about this. I don't know if it's on Mises or not. Um, but yeah, people can look on Mises.org and search my name and marks. But I was definitely writing about it. It's it's hard to get a exact idea of what Marx thought about democracy because he was mostly writing against... Um, most of most of Marx's works were polemical. He'd take what someone else said and say, this is why what they said was wrong. And because of the liberals, the pro-capitalists of his time were his main enemies, he would emphasise the shortcomings of democracy as far as he saw it. But, however, in other places, he, he was praising democracy. He praised... Um, America for being more democratic than Germany. On the whole, parliamentary democracy was seen as sort of a bourgeois liberal thing. Not radical enough for Marx, but not radical enough for Marx, but was maybe a step in the right direction. Um, um, so, so you can see, you know, quotes not not that far from what libertarians might say. Like, um, democracy is one means of deciding one once in every three or six years which member of the ruling class was to misrepresent the people in parliament. You know, th things that things that progressives say today, like, oh, it's not a real democracy. It's just you know you get to vote every three to six years. Um, Johan always likes to say it's the dictatorship of the majority. Well, it is, it is, it is the dictatorship of the majority. But Marx was, in a sense, for dem democrat, for the, for the, for the dictatorship of the democracy of the the majority. The dictatorship of the majority would not necessarily have been something that he was against. Um, so, so it's difficult to extract a clear view because he never sat down and wrote, "Here is my opinion on democracy." Um, so in some places you can find quotes that are favourable to democracy and some some quotes you can find him hostile to democracy. Yeah. I, I remember there is one article Marx wrote for the, the newspaper he was an editor in, um, Rhinelander Sighting or something. Uh, he wrote this article that uh, that was uh, at the moment, it was in 1884, uh, when the, the 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 Workers' Party was uh, kicked out of the parliament, 
and he wrote this article that we should not pay taxes <laughs> because we are not represented. So, so this is actually very funny that you have Marx claiming we should not pay taxes <laughs> because we are not represented. All right, that's quite funny. I know I, I've not seen that article before. I, I can look it. I can look it up for you. It's uh, very funny. <laughs> he was very angry because the, the 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 communist party was kicked out of the the German right. parliament. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes, but, but I mean, uh, he. But but in any choice, whenever a revolutionary government. Uh, took place that was against the majority if they were socialists in his lifetime Marx favoured them so there were like you know the um, the, the civil war in France has um, a tribute to the Paris Commune you know that was basically the situation of a minority of radicals taking over the government and, and there was little uprisings like this throughout his um, his lifetime and he supported them you know so basically he supported democracy when he thought it furthered his aims but if a small group of radical socialist revolutionaries usurped a regime even if it had been established by the overwhelming majority of the people in that region he would still favor the radical communists taking over over the majority yeah yeah um which means that in a way he was the forerunner of Lenin, you know, who, I mean, obviously yeah. Lenin was a Marxist, but Lenin um, doctored Marx slightly because he had to give a justification for why communist revolution happened in agrarian Russia rather than an industrialized country. And he said, well, what we need is a vanguard. We need a vanguard uh, who are the most class-conscious people to lead the revolution because the masses are not ready for revolution yet. So what we need, uh, so the revolution doesn't necessarily come from the bottom up. You know, we need the most advanced um, socialists who have the class consciousness to lead the revolution. I, I ask this question because a lot of if, if you libertarians have a discussion with a communist. Uh, we always always take the example of, of, uh, of the, all those countries that were uh, socialist or communist, and, you, and we say, well, it didn't work out. Look at the, at the Soviet U Union, and then the communists always answer that that was not real communism. Yes, they always but, do that. Uh, yeah, yeah. But in a, um, how much do the how much does it actually? Uh, uh, um, uh, what are the differences between what uh, Marx was looking uh, uh, Mark, what Mark <laughs> sorry I can't get the right English word uh, how much is the difference between what uh, Marx had in mind and the Soviet Union as we know it well the thing is um Marx and his demeanor was kind of dictatorial. So in a sense, the regimes take after um, Marx's character uh, rather than what he said. While he may have explicitly advocated the, de the idea of democratic workers' government, his own personal style was dictatorial and intolerant. So... What could be said is none of these countries completely abolished the market. 
But it's but it's impossible to abolish the market because people are trading by nature. Even in prison camps, you know, people trade cigarettes. Um, As as soon as people get, um, yeah, I don't know anything about it. I have no idea. I have no idea. (laughs) As soon as people are, you know, in internment camps and they're given their Red Cross packages, they open them up and find out what they can trade with one another. So the markets will, you can repress markets, but they will always exist somehow. I guess Marx thought that communism would be so super abundant that people would just go and help themselves to the bounteous largesse that had been created by getting rid of the capitalists but also he thought that people would just work voluntarily on what you know whatever work pleased them so the more you look at what he thought would happen the more it seems a little bit cuckoo um, and you're, you're amazed that people could have been believed this at the time and a little bit more amazed that people can believe it now but i mean people just don't really understand how markets work to be honest, they don't understand how the market um, really drives Amen efficiency. They, 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 they think that they think that markets are wasteful or something like that. When actually, it's only the profit motive that drives companies to innovate and find ways to make fewer resources stretch further. Yeah. True. True. Yeah. Well, is there also a big difference in uh, between? Uh, the, the Soviet Union under Lenin and the Soviet Union under Stalin and then Khrushchev and Brezhnev is, is, is there I a... don't you know I'm not an expert in the history of Russia you know I think it's amazing that uh, a person could have as much power as any of these leaders had and exert so much of an influence of upon society that you, you you can't help but think that yeah of course there would have been differences between them the, the the i think the lesson of russia is exactly what mises predicted would happen in 1920 is exactly what happened i mean if you just give me a second here i'll give you some examples um marx basically Marx basically said that in the absence of a market economy, that the you couldn't you couldn't allocate production properly, and there would be wasteful production, but there would also be shortages. So, despite having a lot of arable land, the the USSR suffered famines, um, and, and we were told that only three percent of the land which was actually privatized was responsible for 30 percent of the food production of the entire country i've heard varying figures on that some people say four percent produce 25 percent and so so that's a little bit confusing but it, it, it has appeared in various credible sources and so you you saw these exact things happen where People were starving, but there was grain in the fields and there there was tractors that were rusty because they didn't have enough diesel to fuel the tractors, but they were making more tractors. Um, when they they, they, they they made lots and lots of women's clothing in large sizes because they were the, the, the targets were set for the yard. So they said, we need X amounts of yards of clothing and the easiest way to produce them was to just make very big clothes. And then houses were built with no roofs because the government demanded nails by the ton. So the easiest way to make the quotas was to produce large nails and, and they were too big for the job. So 
um, it's really interesting that exactly what Mises predicted would happen in the absence of Marxists is what happened in the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah if, if you look at the Soviet Union, uh, it's, it's a real disaster. It's, it's surprising that it took 70 years to collapse. Eh? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the thing is, it, it, it didn't just collapse. I mean, the Soviet Union was subject to famines a few times. And what happens is that the Europeans and the Americans gave them food aid. Now, it's, it might seem like pretty a horrible thing to go, well, just let those people start to death. But the thing is, the, the regime could not have survived outside intervention such as those where we came in and, and brought food aid. And well, I say we, I hate that because we weren't born. The other thing is all the tech, like the Soviet economy was non-innovative. They were getting technology from Europe and America. Um, John D. Rockefeller, owner of Standard Oil, furnished the Soviet regime with, you know, West technology that was built, was developed in the West in exchange for access to the Soviet oil fields. So, um, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union sent food out of the USSR to European countries in exchange for European technology. So uh, uh, the reason why it survived is because it was dependent on on the West the same way that the reason why the state survives in Western institutions is because it's parasitic upon the private sector. Hmm. Uh, uh, yeah, they, yeah, there's also this famine in Ukraine. Uh, they were producing most of the, the grain and they gave it away to Nazi Germany, but wow. which became her, their later enemy. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Second World War, yeah. And uh, so all these people, they they were working in the in the fields, but they were not allowed to eat uh, the food they produced. Yeah, and, and what happened? Death, yeah, literally. they started, and, they, and yeah. then and then they stopped producing um, food in many occasions because they knew they weren't even working for themselves. Someone was going to come along and take it away. Uh, before we end, uh, I want also uh, ask, ask some little bit more about the the, the subject of uh, cultural Marxism. Um, can you describe for people who are not familiar with it uh, how you can recognize this nowadays? Uh, what it is? You already mentioned uh, identity politics, but uh, are yeah, more... it's it's any. I, I would say I consider cultural Marxism. Now, someone might come come along and take a different view or correct me here, to be any cultural attack on capitalism. For example, I kind of see the environmentalist movement as it exists in Western countries as cultural Marxism. What, uh, now, I'm, I'm an environmentalist. I have a very popular podcast called Only Capitalism Can Save the Planet, Socialism Will Destroy the Earth, that did very well on YouTube and on SoundCloud. But the thing is, this environmental movement, like you can see people like the British journalist called George Monbiot, are using envir environmental issues as an attack on capitalism itself, um, when actually those socialist nations did far worse at taking care of the environment than, um, than the West. Trying today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and people don't know this. People don't know how bad the environment was in countries like Czechoslovakia, Poland, and the Soviet Union. Now, yeah. 
So what happened was the old left believed that because when you kicked out the capitalists, um, because they were skimming their profits off the top and labour was the real originator of wealth, of value, that once you got rid of the capitalists, society would become rich, everyone would be richer. That was proven wrong by all of the experiments in communism. So they could stop saying, oh, um, we'll be much richer and more productive under socialism and communism. They had to start saying, well, being productive is bad. Economic growth is destroying the planet. Um, uh, consumerism makes people very materialistic. People are too materialistic in capitalist societies, and that's because they live in a capitalist economy. They won't be so materialistic under our communist utopia. All of these sociological attacks on capitalism, saying that capitalism is bad for the heart and soul of man, I would say those kinds of things are cultural Marxism. It does exist in Marx. Marx thought that um, capitalism was sociologically damaging, not just economically bad, but um, that the 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 worker by performing a repetitive task in a factory was um turned into a cog in a machine you know and definitely the cultural marxist took that analysis further um took his idea of commodity fetishism further and um and started making all sorts of cultural and sociological attacks on capitalism so all of that to me is cultural marxism Right. Yeah. Well. Uh, thanks very much for the for your time. Um, can you also, if, if people want to know more about you, where can they find you? Yeah, you and um, you mentioned can, uh, your podcast. You can check out Scottish Liberty podcast. You can type Anthony Samaroff into Mises.org and find a bunch of my articles, um, including four articles on Marx, which are excerpts from a book I'm writing at the moment on Marx and Mises. So I hope to continue with that. And um, yeah, tune into Scottish Liberty Podcast. I've got, if you want to know which episodes I recommend, send me a little message on Facebook and I'll send you some of my favourite episodes because uh, we've got about 170 episodes. So some people don't know where, where to start. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>